Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, we're to welcome to you, wherever you've joined us, however you've joined us. We're glad that you have joined us today as we begin a brand new series on conflict, namely spiritual conflict. I was thinking back on the first time that I'd ever experienced real conflict outside of the home, you know, outside of sibling rivalry and that kind of thing. I was trying to think back because I'm, I'm not... I won't run from conflict, but I've never liked conflict. Uh, I would rather avoid it if, if I can, but I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna ever say I just enjoy it. As I think back on it, my first real experience with conflict came, I guess I was in first grade at Bolton Elementary School in Winston-Salem. Uh, I was in, well, we'll call her Mrs. Smith's class, and Mrs. Smith, Uh, had her own version of classroom management, which was strict, stricter, and strictest. She was strict. And she did not mind trying to manage her class with something called a ruler. And no, she did not measure anything with a ruler. She hid things with the ruler. And uh, she, she she was something. But anyway, Um, She had another form of classroom management, and that always came at the end of recess. I used to think this was the only time she was actually fun, but I realized later what she was doing. She was still practicing classroom management. At the end of recess, she would line us all up on a starting line, and she would challenge us to race her around the field and then back up to the classroom. Now I know what she was doing. She was trying to get rid of all the extra energy we had so she wouldn't have to use the ruler. But inevitably, when we would race, Mrs., uh, what did I call her, Smith? Mrs. Smith, I'm going to say her real name in a minute. Mrs. Smith would always win, and a guy named Daryl and I were always vying for second place. But the truth is the ma- of the matter is, Mrs. Smith always won, Daryl always came in second, I always came in third, every single time. Now, I don't know why it is, I don't know if the racing had to do with it, I don't know why it is, but Daryl did not like me and I did not like Daryl. And one day it all came to a head. A school day ended, the bell rang and, and Daryl and I happened to be going out the door at the very same time. First grade words were said. (laughs) And before I knew it, out on the sidewalk, Daryl and I were squared off against each other. Now, the only person I'd ever really fought with was my five-year-old sister. So this was very different. Very different. So there we were, squared off on the sidewalk, no teachers around, kids going home, and Daryl balled up his fist, I balled up my fist. Daryl took a swing and hit me, I took a swing and missed. (laughs) And then suddenly, what started so quickly ended so quickly. But I still didn't like Daryl, and Daryl 
still did not like me. And I learned for the very first time that conflict was a real part of uh, human life and human existence from my first grade experience with Daryl. I still don't like conflict. And chances are pretty good you don't like conflict either. But like me, somewhere along the way, you learned that conflict is a natural and an ongoing part of life. Now, this is, this is a problem for us because here's the reality. We were all made and meant for peace. We were not meant for conflict. And because we were meant for peace and we weren't meant for conflict, we were always trying to find ways to stay at peace. Uh, the problem with human beings is that as we struggle for peace and we can't find peace, we wind up fighting for peace. And that is part of the essence of the human condition. We're fighting for something we can't have and in fighting for it, we don't get it. And this explains why there are so many among us who preach sermons to us from the back of their cars. And they say things like coexist, give peace a chance. And my favorite, wag more, bark less. <laughs> I get it, I get it. We were made for peace, not war. We have this hunger deep inside of us for what the Bible calls shalom or peace. And shalom is a wholeness, a wellness, a fullness, a joy that comes from completeness. That's just part of the human condition. For believers, though, and I want you to see this, conflict has a peculiar challenge about it. Because we not only experience the uh, conflict in the temporal realm, but we also experience a kind of conflict that others don't experience. We experience conflict in the spiritual realm. Like everyone else, we have our first grade experiences. But unlike everyone else, we find that we are in conflict, that we have enemies that we can't necessarily see. Many of us as followers of Jesus have never really been taught who these enemies are, how they are to be fought, and what skills God gives or what capacities God gives us to be victorious in the conflict that we face. A lot of believers don't see the conflict they're in. They don't know much about it. They don't know what to do with it. And as a result, they live in great danger and great pain. Now, the Apostle Paul, he knows all of this, and he speaks to it in his letter to the Ephesians. And he addresses the need both to see it and to engage it. And he does it like you can find in no other New Testament letter. And so with Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we want to begin our series on the battle with the hope 
that believers will better understand and take seriously the battle they are in. And we want to begin by looking to a passage that helps explain ultimately the sources of spiritual conflict that we believers face. Because it's only by knowing where the conflict is coming from that we will be able to understand it and be able to engage it effectively. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Now in Ephesians 1, Paul recounts the extraordinary spiritual blessings that the Ephesians and all believers have received in Christ. And he offers a prayer report and he tells the Ephesians, he says, I've been praying for you that you would know God more, that you would trust the hope that he gives, that you would remember the inheritance that you have, but also that you will remember the greatness of the power that he uses for you and that he has used in you. When he turns to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes on then to review the story of of the Ephesians' encounter with the power of God in their own personal lives. And he reminds the Ephesians of the effect that God's great power has had on their lives. And what we will discover as we make our way through this passage and other portions of this book is that Paul is preparing them to understand, to accept, and to face spiritual warfare as a fact that cannot be avoided, a fact that is part of their new lives in Christ. He reminds them of what they were. He reminds them of what God's power has done. And he reminds them later what these things mean, particularly for today. And as he does, what Paul uh, accomplishes is he he helps solve one of the greatest mysteries that uh, believers encounter, and that is the mystery of why. Have Have you experienced this? Why life with Christ is so much harder in some ways than it was without it. He uncovers the mystery of why it can be so much harder to do life with Christ than it was to do life without him. Now let's break all of this down and explore Paul's message here. Notice with me in verses 1 to 3, Paul reminds the Ephesians of what believers were. And in truth, he reminds the Ephesians of what every human being is apart from Christ. Let's read it together, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. And he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice with me the condition of the Ephesians before they came to faith in Christ. Paul says they were dead, verse 1. They were enslaved, verses 2 and 3a. And they were condemned, verse 3b. Let's unpack each of these together. 
Because uh, this is a description, not just of the Ephesians, but of Paul and you and me, it becomes very, very important for us to see this because in understanding what the Ephesians were like before Christ, we understand ourselves better as well. First, the scripture says they were dead in trespasses and sins. This death is a death because of, of trespasses. Uh, because of, 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 as the word conveys, crossing a barrier, entering into a territory we shouldn't have entered into. To trespass is to leave God's good way and to cross over into a way that brings us into evil. To trespass is to cross over from what God has said is good into what God has said is evil. You were dead in your trespassing, and as a consequence of our trespassing, we sinned. We were dead, spiritually separated from God because of our stepping over and staying in a place God said we should never step over and stay in. You were dead, Paul says. But what I want you to notice with me is that this death came by humanity's own choice to trespass. It was by our own choice to enter in, that we entered into territory that was wrong. Before Christ, Paul is saying, sin and death dominated the lives of the Ephesians. And before Christ, sin and death dominated our lives. But it was actually worse than that, Paul says. They were free to sin, just like you and I were free to sin, but they weren't free in their sin. The choice to sin actually brought them into bondage to forces over which they have no control. Choosing to sin brought them into slavery. Watch this. Behind, behind death, there was sin. Behind sin, there was a slavery they couldn't always see. Behind death lay sin, and behind sin lay slavery. Everybody chooses to sin. Everyone chooses also to accept the encouragement of three powerful coordinated forces that eventually enslave them. What are they? Well, they're that rather infamous trio of the world, the flesh, and the devil. First, Paul says they live their lives dead in sin, walking. Do you see it? In the course, verse 2, of this world. Now, the world here doesn't refer to uh, the earth, to creation, but rather to society, organized without God and in opposition to him. It's the human social value system that permeates and then dominates a non-Christian society. It denies God, it refuses his absolutes and creates its own. It glorifies pride and possession and power and pleasure as the ends of life. This is a system that holds people captive. How? Well, first, the world gives us permission to step outside of God's will and to trespass. Then it rewards us for doing so. And then thirdly, it insists that we do so consistently and Completely. In other words, it insists that we join it and become like it. Make no doubt. Peer pressure in middle school, 
It is absolutely nothing compared to the peer pressure that the world puts on the people who live in it. Think cancel culture. Think political correctness. See your own world, but see more. The world we live in is all pervasive. Sometimes I'll hear somebody say, ah, oh, you're bringing the world into the church. Uh, I remember when, when one time we brought colored lights into the church and somebody said, oh, you're bringing the world into the church. It looks like a bar. Well, I've never been in a bar. I don't know how they knew what a bar was looking like, but maybe they did. <laughs> oh, you're bringing the world into the church. I said, no, you don't understand what the world is. The world isn't colored lights, the world isn't a guitar, the world isn't an organ. I mean, that's not the world. The world is a system that is organized contrary to God. Do you know who brings the world into the church? You do. I do. Because the world is all pervasive. It is already in us. So part of my job is to get the world out of me and then to get the world out of you. Now, there are two other enemies that I have to work on, the flesh and the devil. And I got to tell you, getting the devil out of you is really a job. But I'll save that. But listen now, every, radio, every song you hear on the radio, every movie you watch online, every series you stream. Every training session your company puts you through is a sermon. It is a sermon that preaches some set of values, some view of right and wrong, good and evil. It promotes something and demotes something else. And just as many of us have learned to to order out to get our meals rather than fix them for ourselves, we can also learn, if we're not careful, to get our ideas from somewhere else rather than to get them on our own. We've got Grubhub for food. We've got Netflix for our thoughts and our thinking and our values. And this is cultural bondage. Be very careful. The world, if you're a believer, once enslaved you with its values and its perspectives. Be very careful. Little eyes what you see, little ears what you hear. There is a world working against you. But secondly, Paul says, before Christ, believers lived as dead, and, and they were following not only the way of the world, but they were also following the prince of the power of the air. Now, the prince of the power of the air is the ruler of the kingdom of air. It is, it is the ruler of a power that operates in the unseen world. Our second enemy is a personal being with demonic allies. Jesus named him 
personally as Satan. And he also described him as the devil. This prince of the unseen world is a being with real power. He rules and he works, Paul says, in disobedient people or in humanity apart from Christ. He is the source, the source of temptations to sin. He's the one who devours and destroys those that he he tempts and that he controls. Try this. Go online, visit the Wall Street Journal, visit the New York Times, go to your uh, favorite news sources, look for the latest news. Every evil thing, every injustice, every falsehood, every act of oppression, every false truth, Every act of violence you find there, and you will find much if you look, are linked ultimately to him and to his work in people. Of course, C.S. Lewis said rather famously that his greatest scheme is to convince us that he doesn't exist. But look for death, look for destruction, look for devastation, look for dehumanization of any and every kind. And Satan is behind it all. And don't miss this. He's behind it all and he's always wanting more. He loves harm. He loves to do harm and he loves to see harm done. He is powerful and deceptive and cunning and persistent. And you and I are absolutely no match for him. And he too, like the world, holds people captive. How? Well, actually, he uses the world system. And he appeals to our own flesh when... Hey, by the way, mentioning flesh, that's the third enemy we face. Let's look at that. Finally, Paul says that the Ephesians and everyone else without Christ live dead, walking in the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and in the passions of our flesh. Now, the flesh, like the world, can be misunderstood. It isn't the physical body which God made and gave to each of us. Rather, it refers to our fallen, self-centered human nature. The passions that he talks about are our cravings, the cravings of our flesh. And he defines them as performing the desires of both body and mind. And this is very, very important. What Paul means is that our self-centered passions are formed by wrong desires coming from the body and coming from the mind. The wrong desires of the body don't refer to things like sleep and 
food or sex as if they were all automatically wrong. Rather, these wrong desires are, for example, the desire for sleep that comes from laziness or the desire for food that comes from gluttony or the desire for sex that comes out of lust, not out of a marital covenant of a lifetime's commitment. The desires of the mind are also wrong desires that include the desire to be made much of, to be worshiped, to be wanted, to win. And those wrong desires of the mind include pride and selfish ambition and rejection of the truth, fixation with fantasy, hateful and vengeful thoughts. Look, wherever you find in you, wherever you whenever you find coming from you thoughts that are contrary to God's character, thoughts that are opposed to God and his known will, anything in you that promotes your good over others, anything in you that harms others or wishes to, anything in you that wants more and more without ever being satisfied, when you see that, you are seeing your flesh at work. Flesh's favorite word is me. Flesh's least favorite word is you. And the flesh's most hated word is God. Its favorite word is me. Least favorite word is you. Its most hated word is God. Its most feared word is God. Because in the end, what the flesh wants most of all is to be God. And we are enslaved to this flesh. And so we choose to sin on our own. The world is used by Satan to lure us into greater and deeper sin, giving us permission, saying, go ahead, there's nothing wrong with it. God may have said this, but it's fine. Look, look, others are doing it too. You remember, the peer pressure in the, from the world is greater than anything you got in middle school. Anything, anything you got in middle school, it's greater. You get permission, you get encouragement, and then it begins to demand that you continue in what you started or you will pay. We choose to sin on our own. The world is used by Satan to lure us into greater and deeper sin. And Satan applies his power to tempt us in the same direction by appealing to our flesh. Now, do you see what this means? Here is the battle you're actually in if you're a follower of Jesus. You have an enemy on the outside the world. You have an enemy you cannot see, Satan, and you have an enemy, you have a traitor on the inside, your own flesh. But there's one more hard word. Sorry. 
I don't write these books. I just preach from them. <laughs> One more hard word. Not only, Paul says, were the Ephesians and all of us apart from Christ dead and enslaved, they were also and finally condemned. He says they were by nature children of wrath. In other words, our human choices to sin and to live in sin and our siding with the evil of the world and Satan and our flesh against a good and holy God makes us the recipients of his all-encompassing, personal, righteous, and constant hostility to evil. God will not compromise with it. He's absolutely resolved to judge it, to condemn it, and he is ultimately right to do so. He has to, or he isn't himself, he isn't God. So in some, Paul says, this is what you were in Christ, dead, enslaved, condemned, trapped. Dead, enslaved, condemned, trapped no hope of getting out, living dead due to your own choices, enslaved to powers greater than you, condemned living under the wrath of a holy God. But thankfully, this holy God, God himself personally and powerfully involved. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians, secondly, of what God's power has actually done. Look at verses 4 and 5. When everything else seemed hopeless and wrath seemed to be their only destiny, but God, Paul says, being also rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been rescued. Now you see why that word saved should be and actually is such a powerful word. By his grace, you have been rescued, rescued from death, rescued from slavery, rescued from condemnation, rescued from an entrapment that you could not escape from. You've been rescued, rescued. And so Paul says that despite the Ephesians' condition, God intervened by his great power, directed by his great mercy, and by his loving character, with the result that the dead Ephesians were brought from death to life. And he used the same power to raise them up that he employed when he raised Christ from the dead. He used the same power that he employed to make Christ the Lord of the entire cosmos. He used that same power 
And even more importantly for us in this series, he uses that same power in us now. This is why Paul prays and says, I hope you don't forget this. Yes, remember your inheritance, but don't forget as well the great power God has given and has put to work in your life to change you. It is that same power that is at work in you right now. I don't want you to forget it. I want you to fully believe it. Why? In part because of what it actually means for the Ephesians and for every believer right here, right now, which is why, lastly and later, Paul reminds the Ephesians of what all these things mean, what the condition we were in means, and what this power of God employed on our behalf also means. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and look with me at verses 10 and verse 13. Paul shows the Ephesians and all believers in these two verses what our condition before Christ and God's powerful action for us in Christ actually mean now. Now watch this. Don't miss this. Because by God's power, believers have been transformed. Because by God's power, they have left their condition of death and slavery and condemnation. Because by God's power, they've entered a new condition of life and freedom and forgiveness. Believers also find, don't miss this now, that in being transformed by the power of God, they have also at the selfsame time crossed a battle line, separating one kingdom from another. That is why in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul describes this saying, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And what this means, loved ones, at the end of the day, is war. 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 You have gone from a slave to a warrior. You see... Watch now. The Lord Jesus Christ defeated your slave masters on the cross, brought you out of that domain, put you in his own domain, but those slave masters, though defeated, are still present. And they have simply gone from being our masters to being our implacable foes. 
You have very real enemies. And their name is not Daryl. Your real enemy is not your neighbor who can't respect your property line. Your real neighbor, your real enemy is not your coworker who is gunning to get your job. Your real enemy is not your ex-husband or your ex-wife. Your real enemies are not your children. <laughs> I know sometimes it feels that way, but they're, they're really not. Your, your enemies are not your parents. Come on, mom or dad, say amen. amen. Okay, there we go. But your real enemies are either outside you or in you, the world, the devil, or your own flesh. Those same forces that used to enslave us can still use their power to deceive us and harm us and decommission us from the battle we've been put in. Can I tell you how heavy my heart is for this? I know. You, you probably will spend about an hour and a half with your life group each week. And maybe you get, I mean, today you're going to get a, probably a 40-minute sermon from me. And if I go to 42, you go out saying, good grief, he preaches so long. But then you'll go home and you'll turn on Netflix and you'll watch four stinking episode, episodes of something for three hours. And, you know, I just think you're blessed to get a 44-minute sermon. I think you're blessed. But <laughs> I think at the end of the day, what is really critical for me to say to you is it's okay for you to use Grubhub to order your food out, but it's not okay to use CNN or Fox or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it is you use to get your truth, your worldview, your perspective. Because at the end of the day, the only way you're going to live whole and free is to get your truth from the God who made you and who remade you in Christ. The only way you're going to live healthy and whole, listen, dads, moms, the only way your family is going to live whole is if you 
Set up a guard and watch for the presence of flesh in your family, of the world coming at your family, the flesh coming from your family, the world coming at your family, and Satan coming after your family. We may be free from their power over us, but we aren't free of their power applied to us. Perhaps you remember some of the history surrounding World War II. D-Day, as uh, you probably know, was June 6, 1944. It was the day in which Allied forces invaded northern France by means of uh, beach landings in Normandy. D-Day marked the decisive beginning of the end of Nazi Germany. VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, was May 8th, 1945, and that was the day when Nazi Germany finally and formally accepted defeat by the Allies. It marked the end of the war. Theologians have often used World War II as an analogy of what has happened and what's happening to us as believers. The cross, you see, was our D-Day. Our D-Day in the spiritual war. It was the decisive assault of God on the, king, on the forces of evil that doomed our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The final victory, analogous to our V-Day, will occur when all that Christ has settled on D-Day becomes a total fulfilled reality. On the day when the world system has ended and we are finally and fully freed from our old flesh and the devil is cast into hell will be our final victory day. But until then, you and I live between D-Day and V-Day. We've died to sin's penalty, but sin has not been destroyed. Now we have to be engaged in warfare against it, and as a result, we will always find ourselves in the constant conflict that we hate so much. But our old slave masters... Now our implacable enemies, they will not rest no matter how much we want them to. And that is why Paul feels so compelled to warn all believers to beware. He says our enemies have suffered a fatal wound, but they aren't dead yet. And they remain dangerous. And you and I, Paul tells us, we not only have to remain careful and watchful, but we have to be ready to fight. We have to be ready to fight sin 
and we have to be ready to fight for our own holiness. This life that Jesus calls us to, this life that he gives us is not an easy life. It involves conflict. You say, well, I didn't sign up for that. Then I will simply say to you, then you really didn't sign up for Jesus. Because to sign up for him is to step from one camp, one warring camp, into another, and to be treated like a traitor by the side that you left. This is no time to flee. This is a time to fight. And remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But it is time to fight. And my prayer in this series is that out of this series will come moms and dads who fight. Sin in their families and fight for holiness. Fight for wholeness. Fight for wellness. In the strength that only God by His grace can give. That moms and dads who have been rescued set free no longer condemned will fight and teach their kids how to fight the forces we can't see but are ready to harm them. Now, perhaps, you and I can see even more clearly why it is such a privilege to say, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father God, by your grace and for your glory, you have rescued for yourself a people. You have brought us from death to life, moved us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your great son, the kingdom of light. You have granted us freedom. We are no longer dead. We are no longer enslaved. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer trapped. But in Christ, we have been set free. And if we have been set free, as the scripture says, we are free indeed. Father God, in these days that are still to come, would you find us faithful in our freedom to fight? And would you, Father God, find us faithful to learn how to fight properly 
in this battle that you have put us in. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.